This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, June 27th of 2019, it's episode 156. In this episode, Treasure Without Theft, plus the media that's been our biggest gaming inspirations, how City on a Hill Gaming accidentally made this episode, Chrissy's Innocence Game, Jenny's Secret Electronic Library, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. Jenny, you're awake. That's exciting. Am I awake, though? <laughs> I mean, you, you're answering questions. You're a good sleep talker, at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were yeah. telling us about your ridiculous work schedule from right before we started recording, and I am sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I basically worked from, like, our last recording session <laughs> to now. <laughs> Not not quite. I did have a Friday off. Man. Oh, well, that completely negates everything else then. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, our book sale is over. It wasn't great. I'm not going to pretend it was. To be fair, there was like, there there was a pretty big baseball tournament the same weekend and like the weather was gorgeous. So yeah, no one's going to come to the library to look at books that, you know, everybody's already read. Or if they, <laughs> we, I did find some gems that can probably make their way into an unknown armies campaign. There was an amazing one about the ways that plants are talking to us. Um, there was another really, really good one about ESP and how to unlock your third eye. Nice. Um, th- there were some real gems. <laughs> the there the some talking plants one, Jenny. That yeah. might be useful for a certain future campaign. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could find it. It's probably in a box in our basement because so little left. And like, I'm still trying to find good places to put books. Like, I, I do have some connections with um, some charity libraries elsewhere that would love the donated books. But like, I am also sending some books to the dump because I don't feel safe giving those to people, like, to the general public, like, older medical texts and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's always... Yeah, you were always... saying medical information that's more than 10 years old. It's like, yeah, that's probably yeah. best if that just gets recycled and forgotten. I mean, we found a bone in the knee just, like, a few years ago. So, like, I'm really not comfortable with that. Yeah, medical science is one of those things where... It's almost like um, technology books, where by the time you've written it, edited it, laid mm-hmm. it out, gotten the illustrations in, sent it to the printer, and the printer is done with it, and you've released it, it's already out of date. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, I, there is exactly one old text that I have in my library that is in any way medical, and that's Grey's Anatomy. Like, like that's it. <laughs> and and all the rest, I I have to keep up to date Unless I am considering it archival material, in which case it is not really general public accessible. But yeah, no, this this last the last two weeks have been very rough on me and I forgot my meds today. So I'm not really properly all the way here, but we're going to I'm going to power through and it's going to be fine. We That's do have fine. a fun topic so that hopefully that will help. Yeah. So we are talking tonight about treasure and giving rewards to players without turning it into theft. Those who listened a couple episodes ago when we did our Ten Commandments series on theft, you may remember there was an incident we talked about in our City on the Hill game. Well, this grew out of a conversation about that. We'll get to that when we actually get into the topic, but we have a couple other things we wanted to talk about. Peter, you wanted to talk about the Innocence game we've been playing? Yeah, um, so we had our second session of the Innocence game, and it continues to go well. I'm... 
I'm honestly a little bit astounded at how well Chrissy is doing for being a first-time GM. It's kind of reminding me of how our new player was doing when we added her to our group, where it's like, are you sure you've never done this before and just forgot about it? <laughs> mm-hmm. She's she's doing a good job of handing out uh, narrative control pretty freely, and she's giving us all, continuing to give us a lot of space for uh, intra-party RP, which is nice on its own. Um, yes. It's helped by the fact that the game itself is kind of interesting. We've got a tween werewolf in our school and aren't quite sure what to do about it because innocence is, well, I mean, it's kind of what it says on the tin. Just kill it isn't really as much of an option for kids. And I I think also the vulnerability and limited capabilities of child PCs can be kind of fun on their own. Um, There was an incident where several of us were up very late at night on a school night in the last session and just kind of playing my character as being tired to the point of uselessness was kind of entertaining on its own. Yeah. Also, my character has somehow ended up being the the skeptic in the group, the sully to the rest of you as Mulder. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually turned out to be a really interesting dynamic because it kind of makes sense that he's the the kid who's kind of the cynic. He's the one who's always covering for everybody and um, so it fits with oh, yeah. character pretty well. Yeah, he doesn't believe anything. And also, he's not seen any of what you're talking about. Yeah. He actually which... hasn't been there for any supernatural event, um, <laughs> which is great. Like, when it does happen, it'll be, you were all right, and I'm so sorry. But, you know, <laughs> in the moment, no. Like, we're, we were just arguing at a bus. Like we ha- And this is great. Chrissy gave us, like, Five or ten minutes to argue at the bus stop, waiting for the bus in the morning. <laughs> Which was wonderful. Because like, it's totally a thing that kids that age would do. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, it's not a werewolf. The kid's a jerk with a big dog. No, he's a werewolf. He's a jerk with a big dog. You know, it's just back We're and like, forth. It had weird freaky eyes. He's like, you slept two hours last night. Also, all dog eyes are freaky if you're staring, you know, if you're staring down a big dog at 11 at night or whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, we, we've been having a lot of fun with that. It's been a really good game, and I'm excited to, I guess, wrap it up pretty soon. I'm hoping we can. It sounds from what she's been saying like we've got another session, maybe two at the most. Two at the most, depending on, I mean, if I have one criticism, it's that she's not moving us forward at a pace I would want. But new play, new GM, and I, we're all. I think we're not moving us forward at a pace you'd want. I've, yeah, that's I've true. definitely been kind of. You know, speaking for myself, and maybe, you know, this is something you can blame me for, but I've been enjoying the fact that this hasn't been breakneck. I feel like we're really getting a chance to get in and express character and stuff, and I'm liking that. So, yeah, that's probably at least as much on me as her. (laughs) Then I will blame you for it. Peter? Alrighty. (laughs) Your fault. (laughs) I apologize. No, I don't. You just have to deal with it. Sorry. Yeah, I I know. (laughs) I I know I do. No, it's, it's been good. It really has. And I think slowing things down and giving a new GM time to think may not actually be a bad idea. No, it's it's probably a nice thing. Uh, speaking of GMing, um, I've been planning this game for a while. I've written some blog posts on it. I've had a couple of streams where I talked about it, and it's looking like, based on some other stuff, I might actually be able to start it a little earlier than I thought. Now, it still isn't going to be like in three weeks or something, but 
We're looking at maybe right after the holidays instead of next spring, depending on how fast certain things come through. So kind of looking forward to that. The, the problem there is that would be when I would get playtest material and I actually had to sign an NDA. So we might not be able to talk about certain things if we do get an early start. And I'm kind of weighing that, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in no rush. I've got a bunch of stuff I want to try as well that are uh, short one shot things. Um, yeah, bunch of story game kind of stuff because, you know, a I want to pick the Sharn game back up at some yeah. point, but also in the interim, I'd love to do some Powered by the Apocalypse based story. Yeah, games I have yet to do sort of anything with PBTA, and I would really like a, a shot at that too. Also, speaking of the Sharn thing, I'm I'm hoping maybe Jenny, you'll have like some holiday time or something where we can squeeze another adventure in. Because I don't think I'm gonna be taking any classes next semester so okay yeah. oh well, good i mean just... <laughs> not for you so much but for the game yes yeah i mean you just keep keep me posted let me know when i when i need to start prepping vampire by the way has also gone well glad to hear it I'm trying to think if there's any, well so this is actually kind of fun we've been dealing with a couple of, of people just randomly missing for various reasons but we we did have a really fun scene where the um okay so the basic setup is i found an interesting place on a map in London and said, okay, this is your domain. It's the Herringay Warehouse District for our British listeners. I don't think we have any, but there you go, which is in Tottenham and Woodcourt. And it's an old warehouse area that is currently, as is like as of 2019, going through like revitalization and redevelopment. There's art studios and coffee shops and that sort of thing. I think we do actually have a couple of listeners in Great Britain, at least. I think we do. You're right. Yeah. No, but I'm, I mean, like, the Mowers are there, and I, I'm pretty sure they listen. But yes, although they're in Scotland, aren't they? Yeah, that's Scotland. Yeah, Britain? Great Britain? Uh, part of the Empire? Uh, yeah, UK? North, North <laughs> London is nothing like Scotland. Yeah. It's really like, okay. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just putting that out there right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we apologize to any of our <laughs> British and to our Scottish listeners for that one. Um because uh, both of I, them have I, feelings I about it, that. I forced it too much. We're I'm well sorry. Aware. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but this is set in 1995 and in the world of darkness. So it's a rundown area. And so that's their domain. And they've got a club and a tattoo parlor and a women's shelter that they all run and things like that. It's been really interesting because we had a gang kind of roll up on them and say, hey, you know, we want to take this over. And they said, what if instead you worked for us and we didn't eat you? <laughs> And it wasn't quite that blatant, but they did. But it was this really great negotiation scene. And they're like, OK, we think we have the, the leader, at least like on a very thin leash. But there's something weird going on with uh, the girl he's hanging out with. And also there's this guy who really wants to just like, you know, shoot us all and make an example of us. So we probably need to make an example of him. And so it's been a really fun thing. And we're sort of dealing with politics in a way, but not annoying vampire court politics. It's kind of street hmm. politics, and that's been fun. Hmm. Anyway, it's going well, and I'm enjoying it. I think my players are as well. I'm glad to hear it. Okay. We have a huge topic. So let's we have our literally six pages of notes about the topic, just not including our scripture and intro stuff. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's go ahead and roll on our question table, which our Patreon subscribers have the opportunity to contribute to. And we've got a couple of new ones recently, by the way. So thank you, everybody who's been supporting us. Okay, so this is from Paige Lowe, who's been a longtime supporter. What media has been your biggest gaming inspiration? Hmm, boy. I can go ahead and start with this. 
Yeah, you're going to need to because I got to I got to think. <laughs> so here's the thing. This is for a game I haven't actually managed to run yet, but it's one that I have I've had in my head for longer than our gaming group has been together, Peter. Yeah, actually, I remember I think you wrote some uh, short fiction in this setting. I tried, but it was a version garbage. of it back in the writing group that we were both in that kind of formed this podcast. Yeah, it, so, was, it was real bad, but that's not the point. So for a very long time, I have been trying to put together a game that captures that feeling of wonder and exploration from uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That idea of setting out into an unknown world that has all sorts of, of mysterious and wonderful things, and it gets stranger and stranger the further you get out there. But combining that with Miyazaki's Castle in the Sky and an old Super Famicom tactical JRPG in, in a way that um, never saw U.S. release called Bahamut Lagoon. It's a, a Square Enix game, or Squaresoft at the time. Castle in the Sky has that whole sense of here's this wondrous ancient thing that's been floating, lots of airplanes, lots of flight motifs. Bahamut Lagoon is set in a world of infinite sky with these rocky islands floating around just in this infinite plane of air. And people either have islands that have been converted into ships that sail around or fly around on Dragonback. I love the idea of setting out you know, basically sailing through the sky, exploring, looking for something that you know is out there, some goal, some some ancient bastion that you're trying to get to that you're only you only know through legend or something like that. I've been trying to put this together for a decade. It hasn't happened, but I'm, I would say that those three things have probably been my biggest inspiration because I've been trying to find games that that work for that. For the record, I'm getting slightly closer, <laughs> so that's a thing. But I'd, I'd say that's probably been it. Which is weird because it, it hasn't turned into anything real, but that's the one that's constantly been in my head. I don't like questions like this. I'm not good at them. Like, if I had, like, a concrete physical object in front of me and someone was asking, like, oh, what was your inspiration for making this physical object? I could immediately tell them. But, like, for me, gaming is so nebulous. I, I don't know. I don't know because... It, it's just such a... Let me ask you this, Jenny. You've done a lot of bird characters lately. Is there anything driving that? I know. I just want to fly. I want to fly and I want to have horns. Like, okay. there's no real mystery behind that. That's why I like bird characters, and it's why I always take Alter Self if I can in D&D. Okay. Like, there's there's no real inspiration there. I, I don't know. Um, no, that's... Yeah. <laughs> No, that's reasonable. Okay, it's nothing so. I was just seeing if that if that brought anything concrete. to mind. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'll note that mine is for a game I never put together. If you talk about games I've actually run, eh, I don't know. Um, actually, oh, that's that's not true. Actually, because the colonization game was based largely off Jules Verne's The Mysterious Island. So yeah, that's the thing. And there was a lot of Wizard of Earthsea in there, too, from what you said. And I saw even a little yeah. bit of it just when I read the book. So. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm I'm going to throw out there for me? Uh, hmm. Supergiant Games. Okay. Because I like the way that they do a story. Mm -hmm. And their aesthetic generally lines up with my mental aesthetic of what I see when I play a game. 
Um, so and I'm, for for our listeners who don't know the publisher, what games have they made? They have made Bastion and Transistor and Pyre and Hades, which right. I have yet to play, but uh, it looks like a combination of everything that I've liked from all their previous games. So I've put a bunch of hours into Hades. It is quite good. You will enjoy the living daylights out of that game. Yeah, I just have to get your hands on it when I can. You know, come up with the courage to download Epic Games Store thing. So. Have yet another gaming platform on my PC. You know, whatever. There's uh, some talk that the new version of God Galaxy will be able to consolidate those together, and I hope that pans out, because, yeah, yeah, it's getting annoying. I've been thinking about this while you two have been talking, and for gaming specifically, I think I gotta go with the original Mass Effect trilogy, hmm. which is weird because it came out long after I started gaming, right? Yeah. Like, I, I started gaming, like, probably back in 1997 or 1998-ish, but the way that they handle characters, the moral universe of that setting, kind of the, the mix of what I, I heard described someplace as black and white and gray which is to say there are some really bad people who will always be bad. There are some really good people who will always be good, but there is a, a gray section in the middle that has a bunch in it. I like that kind of a construct. I like the idea of there being like this kind of cosmic evil out there and yet people still defy it and fight against it and can achieve meaningful success even if it's costly sometimes. Mm -hmm. There's so much stuff that I like and have used in, or at least wanted to use in games that I've run. I mean, I mean it comes um, up on this podcast all the time from you. Yeah, the collectors probably are. I mean, they're they're definitely part of uh, Alcova in uh, the mm -hmm. setting for the motorcycle gang. Yeah, I like a dynamic like they have on the Normandy for a player character group. You know, with the companions there and stuff. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think the original Mass Effect trilogy is. Probably it for the thing that has influenced my my gaming the most. Okay. Well, that's at least some answers. Paige, thanks for the question. We appreciate yeah. it. And again, if you want to send your questions in, you're, if you're a Patreon supporter, you can do that just through any means you want. Patreon messages, email, reaching out to us on Discord or Twitter or Facebook, whatever. Any of those are fine. And if you're not a Patreon supporter, you know, for as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going as we do every two weeks. And uh Get to send in questions, get access to show outlines, all sorts of fun stuff. All right, we've got scripture to read, and then we have this big, big topic we keep promising. Let's start with scripture. Who wants to start us off with 2 Kings? I can do that. So 2 Kings, chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. And I'll take uh, Proverbs. This is chapter 22, verse 16. One who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth, and one who gives gifts to the rich, both come to poverty. And this is Matthew six nineteen through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we have Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, commonly known as the parable of the workers in the vineyard. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So our topic. This, again, uh, comes from a discussion we had with Ryan Felton. Basically, here's what happened. Ryan, of course, is the GM of City on a Hill. We talked about this case where my character sort of stole a big old chest of gold as our reward, getting involved in a combat encounter in the middle of an orc camp and that sort of thing. And, you know, hey, we're getting treasure from bad guys. Great. But we, because it's such a fundamentally D&D thing to do, it never even crossed our minds until we were talking about theft a little bit later in this episode, uh, two episodes ago, that, oh, hey, my very much goody two-shoes character just sort of walked out of there with a chest of gold that didn't belong to him because that's what you do in D&D. Whoops. Yep. Again, examine your assumptions. It helps. <laughs> because sometimes, like, you don't realize what is just gamer culture and what actually makes sense in a narrative. Exactly. So anyway, Ryan reached out to us after that episode, uh, and I said it was 153. It's actually 154. He reached out to us in the City on a Hill planning discord that he's got about ways to hand out treasure without making the PCs into thieves as part of the process. And about 45 minutes later, Peter and I had spat an episode out in Discord. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Seriously, nonstop talking. Most of the outline that we have here is, oh, and this, and this, and this, and this, and just paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. Peter and I going back and forth. Like, we literally just were podcasting in text. Yeah, and at some point, Grant was like, you know, we really should record this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that that's kind of where this comes from, which is good. We're going to probably there's going to be sort of an emphasis on a D&D style game here, and that's because of some basic assumptions that I want to lay out for everyone. First, we're talking about a game at all where treasure is a thing. If you are playing primetime adventures or something, prime, yeah, sure. Primetime adventures or, you know, certain story games you know, like Monster Hearts or something. Dogs in the Vineyard. Even. Dogs in the Vineyard. Get mm -hmm. yeah, treasure. The idea of get loot to fund what you're doing is not part of it. If you're doing, you know, sort of the the classic spaceship working off a debt kind of game, maybe this does matter. It's not a loot and scoot D&D &D game or Diablo game, but that's, it's still, you know, you're, you're keeping an account. Look, if your game could conceivably involve an Excel spreadsheet, we're talking to you. <laughs> yeah. All right. And I, I think the other thing, just as we kind of go on, is like, we have 
like I said, six pages of notes about this. This turned out to be so much more of a topic than we initially even thought, I think, when we started having the conversation. Because it was like, one thing leads to another, and there are so many ways to yes. give stuff to PCs without making them into thieves in the process. It's, yeah. It's a little mind-boggling. It is. And we're not going to get to all of them, okay? I guarantee you'll be able to come up with your own. And I want to hear from other people what you do in your game, if there's something we don't mention and how you do yes, it. Yes, Or definitely. even if it is something we mention. I want to hear how you do it, you know? Tweet it at us. We'll share it out. Get on our Discord. There's a link on our website. Just go there, stgcast.org. Boom. Done. Join our Discord. Now, if you're playing a game where you care about, hey, maybe our PC shouldn't, you know, loot the bodies, then this is for you. But, you know, if you're playing a old loot the dungeon Gygaxian module, you know what? Cool. Great. Go for it. And this isn't an all or nothing kind of thing. You can use this advice to introduce some complexity, some description, maybe some moral grayness and, and things that player characters have to deal with. Cool. But you don't have to, like, listen to this episode five times, take careful notes and put all of it into your game. All right. Find something cool that works for you and go with it. Yeah, more even than most of our episodes, this is going to be a fire hose of ideas. Take what you like and yeah, enjoy. Exactly. Um, and two basic rules that I want you to keep in mind for this. First, as we talk about these, these all kind of come from two basic core concepts. First, that the fiscal rewards player characters earn don't necessarily have to be intimately tied to the combat encounters that you set up for them or even encounters in general. They, you know, they don't have to be a natural outgrowth of those encounters. They can come from other things because the idea is in most of these games, there's like a wealth by level table or, okay, by the time they're at this much XP, they probably have this much in resources, something like that. Keeping on that curve doesn't have to come from the same thing each time. Yeah. And then the other thing I want you to keep in mind is that if you have an idea, iterate on it. Start with one thing and then go again and again and again on the same thing. Consider the logical implications of whatever you come up with. Play around with interesting variations. You'll see us do this quite a lot. And frankly, it's good creative advice in general. You know, ask yourself, OK, what if? OK, what if that? OK, what if that? It's like writing science fiction someone famously said, I cannot remember who, but it's an idea that's been around for a long time, that science fiction is speculative fiction, namely, what if this were true? What would be the end result? Fantasy, you can also describe fantasy as speculative fiction as well. There's a lot of different genres of it. So let's talk about the first one, the first big category of this. Instead of we loot the bodies, what if player characters are just paid for their work? Yeah. And you'll you'll hear this a lot in uh, our City on a Hill episodes because the player character group in that has basically been working as very ethical security consultants. Yeah. Um, we've been doing a lot of like getting innocent people through dangerous territory to where they need to go kind of stuff. A rescue operation, um, some guarding people where they while they harvested some plants in a cave that was uh, inhabited by some hostile forces, that sort of thing. So, yeah, you know, bodyguard work, that's, you know, that's a perfectly good one, especially if your characters are pretty light touch like ours are. And it's like, you know, if something actually attacks, you fight back and then it's like, are you sick of fighting yet? Good. Go away. You know, <laughs> it's like not everything is to the death. But there's also a lot to be done kind of as an explorer cartographer kind of thing or an explorer diplomat. And this this can be very um, influenced by the setting. Like in a sci-fi setting, a planetary surveyor would 
definitely be something that you could have, you know, PCs doing, hey, we just opened a wormhole to this new system. We don't know what's there. Suit up in your, you know, powered spacesuits and go check it out. Yeah. Mining um, prospectors, anything along those lines. Uh, I mean, honestly, as terrible as the game is, this is sort of the conceit of Rogue Trader. You know, we're going out into the wilds and finding treasure. Yeah. There's little shadings of it in Traveler and stuff, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was basically the job of all of my games growing up. Like, you're all grad students working with this one professor. This one professor wants this piece of land charted. Find out what's there and mm -hmm. and he'll pay you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it works well. And of course, you can also find, you know, like, okay, we know that this is a dangerous place. Find us a safe path. We're looking for a, a route, a northern passage kind of thing, something like that. All sorts of opp opportunities and variations, as Peter said, depending on what the theme of the game is and the setting and so on and so forth. Um, you can also, as I said earlier, mix this with Diplomat. So if you're in, this works especially well in like a post-apocalyptic or other changed world setting. You might know what used to be there. There was a city there before, you know, the bombs fell or the asteroid hit or what, you know, the plague happened or whatever. But you haven't heard anything from that area now. Right. So go find out what's there now. You know, and, you know what the map is, but not what's in it. Right. And you'll note, by the way, that not only is this how you're getting rewarded, all of these are great opportunities for encounters and role playing and adventure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this can be a plot engine, too. Yeah, yeah. it's exactly. an excellent, like, first contact with aliens kind of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Scenario. Definitely. Yeah. While we're specifically talking about not stealing, it's very possible that there's a reward for recovering something. This chunk of treasure was stolen from me. I can't go get it back. Uh, I will give 5% or, you know, I'll give X amount to you guys if you'll go get it. Because getting 95% of my treasure back is a lot better than none. Okay, yeah. cool. That's, a, that's an adventure hook. It's a reason to be out there. It's a good reason to fire up your module. Go. Or in the case of, like, my Eberron game, the first case we did ended with the recovery of a literal pirate treasure that had been secreted away in the underbelly of Sharn. <laughs> and by law, 10% of that went to the finders, i.e. the player characters. And Peter, Which you freaked out about this. I did not realize about that when we were... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, hold on. I, I thought Here's we were going to just go in and take it all, and it's like, I am not down for this. Okay. This is robbing our client. I Again, default assumptions of D&D. I said, you find treasure. You assumed it was there for you guys in its entirety because that's what treasure is for in D&D. Mm -hmm. Forgetting you're in a civilized metropolis that probably has rules for this sort of thing. No, see, I was remembering we were in a civilized metropolis. I just forgot that it might have the rules. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. But again, you, you had a default assumption about how D&D &D functions. Yeah, I did, because it's so ingrained. Right. Which is one of the reasons why this episode is useful. Yeah, I'm not blaming you for this at all. It's just a really interesting example of like, this is how, despite us playing a very different kind of game, you still brought those assumptions to the table. I kind of suspect that if we were playing something that was not explicitly Dungeons and Dragons, you might not have had that same reaction. Yeah, I don't think I would have in some of the other stuff we've played. But yeah, oh, here's a big pile of treasure. It's like, but that shouldn't be ours. We were, you know, and then it's like, yeah, of course it shouldn't be. You're going to get a finder's fee. And it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, duh. Also, <laughs> sound of Peter face palming. Well, here's the mm. other secret bit of that. What's more interesting, a treasure appropriate for second level characters 
Or, hey, 10% of this treasure is appropriate for five or six player characters, which means the rest of this treasure is 10 times bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what you wound up doing there is because of the finder's fee thing. It's like we could stumble on this huge pile of treasure. Yeah. And because we found it for the client, too, we actually had a little bit of say in how he dispersed some of it. There was a... Uh, uh, it was in kind of a poor neighborhood, and this teenager was helpful in, you know, locating it, so we made sure she got a little bit. And Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, that that was a an interesting case that came up, and I wanted to make sure we talked about that. Um, the other thing, and this ties very heavily into the whole exploration thing that Peter was talking about earlier, sometimes treasure occurs naturally. Yep. Uh, this was something you did in the colony game, actually. We, um, we, we found an iron mine. We'll get into that a little bit later, but just kind of put a pin in that one. But there's magic or valuable like plants, ores, animals, that sort of thing. Um, D&D and especially settings like Aberon or the Forgotten Realms are just rife with exotic materials. There's ironwood, sorewood, mithril, adamantine, or a calcum in some settings. I mean, there's mm -hmm. all of this stuff out there that's, you know, just in the world that it's like, if you know how to identify it and you stumble across a deposit of it, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And it fits in really well with the surveying, mm -hmm. like honest work kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. If, if you're doing a hex crawl, oh, this feels really good. In this particular hex, we found plants that have curative properties. That's valuable. Like or even just a marble quarry. Sure. I mean, that would be incredible too. Right. And, and information about that is valuable. Or maybe some of the material is valuable in and of itself. This could be something like, hey, we found an asteroid with a rare element. We found an exotic gas in the rings of this planet, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're playing Discworld, you came across a sapient pearwood grove. Boom, done, cool. You know? Yeah, and then, of course, weird settings may have exotic materials. Maybe it's something yeah. that was artificially created, but so long ago, it's functionally a natural resource. Yeah, Numenera is good for that sort of thing. Sort of uh, like oil. Various types of synth and stuff there. Yeah, it's like it's like an oil well. Like, we're not going to be able to make more of this, but we found it. Yeah. Um, and a while ago, I read this really cool article, and I'm going to link this in the show notes, about a type of fungus that was recently discovered in Australia that extracts gold out of the surrounding environment. It actually pulls gold up out of the soil. Now, of course, the real world version only contains, you know, tiny, minute microscopic amounts of gold, but it's your game. Go have fun with it. I mean, you know, if you have a, a sci-fi plant that coats itself in gold to keep itself bacteria-free, that's really cool. You've got plants made of literal gold. Have fun with that. Yeah. Or or a, a fantasy version. Oh, yeah, this is just a, a massive mushroom that pulls up gold and it's deposited in its, in its uh, mushroomy flesh. Yeah, Neat. and I mean, you know, let's say even like coastal or something, so it's extracting it out of the seawater where you wouldn't even be going to dig for it. Sure, know? anything that could like be that. Like a, a seaweed or something maybe that, you know, collects mm -hmm. something precious that's normally in too small of a concentration in the water, you know, that can be neat. Right. And again, if you iterate on this, there's this fungus in the swamp that it pulls gold up out of the mud and soil. And so there's this community of basically gold truffle hunters running around in the swamps looking for mushrooms. And the only ones left are in these incredibly dangerous areas and people get sick because they're in this toxic fin. That sounds like a place that's ripe for adventure. Go have fun. Yeah. Right. Again, iterate. Here's a cool thing. What are its consequences? Well, and then, like, what about the parts of the mushroom that aren't full of gold? Full of spores. Are those, yeah, are those toxic? Are those edible? Um, you oh, know, they're they're like, toxic. Trust me. 
They're toxic. <laughs> and here we see the difference between Brent's GMing style and mine. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, but again, nature is really cool. Ants. Ants have a garbage pile in their colonies. Giant ants. Giant ants. ants. Yeah. <laughs> they probably have giant garbage, like human-sized stuff from their prey. Like, huh, this magic spear is really inedible. I'm going to go drag this off to the dump and leave it there. Yeah, as, 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 long, as, you're, uh, as long as you're happy with... Magic treasure that's got giant ant mandible marks all over it. You're golden. I mean, possibly literally. <laughs> I I make sure all of my treasure has giant mandible marks. Personally, that's yeah. it's a personal it's approach. A signature thing. But yeah, it yeah. really is. I mean, if it doesn't have it, I make sure to go find a giant ant and say, "Hey, chew on this for a little." Right? I mean, that's how you do it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it, layers of of monsters that aren't you know things that you have problems having a, a combat encounter with, or maybe, you know, you need to sneak in because it's like Brynjolf, the the dark, he and his magic sword, he tried to go into this giant ant nest and um, didn't go so well. We need his magic sword. Can you please go get it? Well, <laughs> let's go sneak through the, the ant dungeon. Yeah. How many druids can we get to help us with this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, if we this can one's get somebody to turn into a giant ant. <laughs> yeah. If you fight a giant shark, you know, it's not really stealing. This is this is something different, especially if you cut some treasure out of the stomach of a slain shark. Sharks eat everything. They chew on things all the time. Yeah, I mean, cool. in the literal real world, they have found, like, wooden chests filled with nails in shark stomachs before. Yeah, it's crazy. Go with that. That's, that's a good natural way to be like, huh, there's treasure in this thing that doesn't normally keep treasure – but in interacting with people, it, it ends <laughs> yeah. up having treasure in some way. Yeah. Uh, and the other piece of this is that dangerous creatures are often resources in and of themselves. Maybe you want to go capture those uh, basilisks rather than fight them because, hey, basilisks sell for quite a lot of money on the black market. Or you kill the basilisk and its blood is valuable. I mean, this goes back to mythology. Heracles dipped his arrows into the poisonous blood of the Lernaean Hydra and thereby made them instantly lethal. So too with an adventuring party, maybe. If you fight a, a hydra or something poisonous, again, like a basilisk, cool, that's a reward you can give them. Yeah, your uh, your party arrows are now extra poison damage. Well, and you know what the absolutely stereotypical example of this is, right? Dragon scale armor. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. dragon scale armor, mm -hmm. sure. I mean, we did this in a game where we fought a purple worm. Happy to say my character uh, one shot a purple worm because I play very broken characters and D&D 3.5. Also, purple worms have very low intelligence, and Ray of Stupidity was a very badly designed spell. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know what I'm talking about, in earlier editions of D&D, there, there were ways to damage statistics directly. And if any of them went to zero, you died. Well, bad things happened. Yeah. Int going to zero resulted in a 24-hour coma. Charisma would cause death. Constitution would cause death. Um, actually, I think charisma caused you to like rise as a white later, stuff like that. Um, but anyway, it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, an a purple worm that's unconscious for 24 hours can be beaten to death by a sufficiently motivated peasant. So yeah, <laughs> you do you. So we did that. And then it's like, oh, well, we've got purple worm poison and we've got purple worm scale armor now. And hey, great. That's Monster Hunter. Like, is that not Monster Hunter the video game? Like, I don't know. I've oh, never yeah. played it. But okay. I I've watched other people is. play it. I'm pretty sure that's Monster Hunter. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, you're hunting monsters. And yeah. from what I've, what little I have seen on the internet, 
Yeah, that makes sense that that's what what you're doing. Yeah. And again, that gives you an item that has a story behind it. People will love showing off their purple worm armor because they didn't just buy it. They made that. They fought for that and turned it into a thing with their own ingenuity. Yeah. And um, just as a quick side note, if this sounds good to you and you're playing 5e, I have seen a couple, I think, third party products in the DMs Guild for like five bucks or less that deal with this. And so go digging around. You can probably find some resources for this if you don't want to do all the homework yourself. And of course, once you clear the dangerous monster or the gold eating toxic fungus out of whatever location it's in, maybe that location in and of itself is valuable. Uh, we talked about the iron mine, right? That had yep. a troll in it and a few other terrible, nasty things because I make poor choices for the player characters. Um, actually, <laughs> you guys handled it all very well. Yeah, the exploding beholder fungus was especially fun. Oh, everybody loves the gas spores. That was yeah. great. Uh, also, the uh, the pit that definitely went down to the Underdark and you guys quickly sealed off. I was fond of that one. Yeah. yeah it's like we, we dropped a, a torch in there and it's like... I don't see that torch anymore, do you? Nope. Well, <laughs> we're walling this off. <laughs> nope, this is the hole the Gricks came out of, and uh, it goes down and down and down. Yeah, we're going to um, cap this one. <laughs> yes, that <Yeah>. was fun. <laughs> but anyway, the iron mine in and of itself was treasure. It wasn't just, this is valuable to other people. It gave you access to materials that you guys needed to be better at what you were doing, which is part of the, the loot cycle of games like D&D. Earn money, spend money to earn more money, spend money to earn more money, so on and so forth. Yep. And, you know, a source of valuable or helpful plants or animals would also count. Uh, if you've found a grove of trees with some kind of magic fruit, that's always good. If you found yeah. a cave full of fuzzy snuggle bats, which, you know, which make great pets, that would also be good, you know? Sure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm actually thinking of like Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Singer series. The little tiny fire lizards that she ends up with end up sweeping society as fashionable pets. <laughs> That's a cool treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, as you as you walk around and you see people rather proudly or haughtily holding their little pet fire lizard, you know, mini dragons, you can go, that was us. Give you a deal on them. Um, there's a very classic category of treasure, the lost item and shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. Or or things like that. We kind of talked about this, you know, with that, that silly ant example. Oh, yeah, some idiot charged in with his magic sword. We need the magic sword back. But shipwrecks are a big deal. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a lot of them historically. There's still a bunch lying at the bottom of the various oceans. I mean. Oh, yeah. They did this cool thing recently where they mapped the Mediterranean recently in the past like decade or so where they, they did a really good job mapping the Mediterranean uh, and the floor of it. And with climate change, other shipwrecks have been discovered that they never knew about. And so they're finding more and more of these shipwrecks, including some remarkably well-preserved shipwrecks from thousands of years ago. They're really cool to find. But the point is, if there's a dangerous area around and you guys know about it, your party's probably not the first people to try and get through there. Bermuda Triangle. Well, that like, sure. like enough said, Bermuda Triangle game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or at least, you know, the Bermuda Triangle as it's popularly thought yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fake Bermuda yeah. Triangle game. <laughs> right, right. The, the interesting yeah. version. Yeah. Yeah, don't be a fun ruiner. Come no, on. That's right. <laughs> I, I'm trying not to, but like I said, the interesting version of that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you're playing like a Star Wars game, you're hiding somewhere or exploring somewhere. Hey, there's a, a sm we found the wreck of a smuggler ship. I mean, pfft. Grant, if you're playing a Star Wars game, Wreck of the First Death Star, 
Ooh, I mean, yeah. that blew up. Oh, there was probably all kinds of cool stuff in that wreckage. Well, yeah, probably true. But I'm saying, like, if you're out on the frontier or or something like that, hey, here's a smuggler ship who was hiding out here. Here's its wreck. It smashed into an asteroid. Well, the cargo hold might still hold valuable goods. The barely functioning remnants of its computer system may hold valuable information about smugglers and smuggler routes and navigational information and all that sort of stuff, right? That's cool stuff. The Death Star... Maybe one of those laser pieces is still floating there for the taking. This sounds cool. like a video game I've been playing lately. Sounds like some Star Wars Legends material, actually. Nope. <laughs> this this game is different, but I unfortunately, I'm not sure the title is something we can say in our podcast. Okay, fair enough. So the first word is void. So <laughs> Oh, yes, yes. That's a cool game, though. Yes, it is. <laughs> but Rex can have value beyond the physical material. If it's a historic wreck, that's really cool. I've got a bunch of Jack McDevitt books that are essentially all archaeological space mysteries. They're really nice. neat. They're great fun It's because the thing that is found is valuable because it's historic, not because it's a useful natural resource or something. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you dig up Amelia Earhart's plane, museums will definitely oh, want that. Oh, everybody yeah. will want that. You'll have to fend off the squads of professionals hired to steal it from you yeah <laughs> <laughs> which hey adventure yeah and and the museum curators that get into a bidding war and yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> and what's cool is that you don't necessarily have to find all of it in one place you can just have a thing that happened and as a result here's some treasure in a really weird random place you wouldn't think of we have a local story about that actually can i go with my local story because I, I only just remembered this um there is a, a town just a couple, uh, about an hour up the road from me, that has a road called Astrolab Road. Because a kid was just like wandering around in the forest, you know, mm -hmm. having a good time as kids do. And he climbed a tree and he found an astrolab huh. stuck on a branch up in this tree. And it turned out it was like a, this, this famous explorer's lost astrolab. We have documented in his diaries that he lost this astrolab in the area. He'd basically dropped it in the forest over top of a baby tree that then grew and the astrolab just like happened to hang on one of the branches like from the 1700s onward. That that's, is wild. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> it's fantastic. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, but yeah, you found an ancient astrolab in a tree. Again, history is weird and wild and is your best starting point for making up the fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, my, my personal favorite historical example of this is the treasure of King John. So little uh, backstory on this. I have a personal love of the Plantagenet family, and this is what, one of the uh, dramatic stories that the Plantagenets have, of course. So October 1216 AD, right? Bad King John. Those of you who remember the Robin Hood movies, this is King John from the Robin Hood story. He's campaigning against the French king who's invading England. Uh, this is the end of his reign. You know, he's campaigning against the French and the barons supporting Philip. John is not the trusting sort. And so rather than keeping the royal treasure of England in the vault, it was legally supposed to be kept in, in Winchester. He had it with him. And he'd actually sent a huge chunk of like plate and cup. Plate, by the way, was sort of the um, the large scale currency of medieval times. If you had a lot of wealth that you wanted to keep safely in something fungible, you bought plate with it. Fun fact. So he'd sent it out to all these monasteries for safekeeping. And then he, in October, you know, in the, in the months prior- Wait, is in plate armor? No, like serving dishes. Ah, okay. It was plates. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, these very expensive like a, an serving An actual, sets. like, gold serving tray. Yeah, okay. yeah, I because gotcha. it, it, that kind of thing. So he had recently, over the past couple of months, sent to, like, 16 monasteries to have everything that they were holding for him sent to him. So he's traveling around with the royal treasures of England and the treasury of England. What okay. could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, about that. Uh, so sometime <laughs> between the 12th and 15th of October, John left Lynn, one of the few cities that was he was very friendly with, and was attempting to reach Lincolnshire. He was sick with dysentery, took the long way around what's called the Wash in East Anglia, which is a big muddy estuary full of fens and streams. And he sent the baggage train through the Wash to try and ensure that it reached safety more quickly. But apparently neither he nor his advisors nor anyone else really knew that when the tide rose, sometimes the Wash could get kind of violent. Uh-oh. <laughs> And so the rising tide brought quicksands and whirlpools, and at least some of the baggage train was lost, reputedly taking with it the crown jewels, England's royal regalia, the crown, the scepter, and the orb of England, uh, the sword of Tristram, a golden wand capped with a dove, and the royal seal of England, without which no official business could be done. None of it, none of it has ever been recovered. No! Not a bit. They spent three days searching for it and never found it. Now, accounts of the actual damage varied wildly, right? Medieval accounts, especially those produced by John's detractors, may certainly have exaggerated the losses, right? Hey, you know, John literally lost the kingship. You know, he, he was not fit to rule and this was proof. But the stress of such a loss certainly seems to have sickened John further. He traveled to Newark Castle nearby and died sometime in the night between the 18th and 19th of October. So just like a couple days later. He was, again, this is the end of his reign. He was sick, old, tired, worn out from fighting with barons constantly, that sort of thing. But supposedly only a single cup was ever recovered. And it was the top of a goblet, not even a whole goblet, but the top of a goblet was found by a child. Huh. So there's a bunch of gold somewhere out there that's just gone. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Now, imagine this happened further upstream. You're traveling and, huh, this random golden cup washes ashore. That's weird, but what's the story behind that? And then, oh, hey, people keep turning up treasure in this area. I bet a bunch of treasure hunters are showing up looking for it. What what complexities and complications happen as a result of that? If you find the Royal Seal of England, what happens? Yeah. And I mean, think about it like in both like just kind of the normal real world that we live in. If you find the royal seal of England now, what happens? And then take it and put a mythic spin on it. It's like, sure. if you found the magic royal seal of England, okay. what, what happens, happens if, then? What happens you know? if you find the sword of Tristram? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Mm, yeah. Right. Or if you're in a, a medieval fantasy world, what happens if you find the lost royal seal of a nation? You can now forge any official document you want up to and including laws. Yep. Okay. That's the thing. Or depending on how that's seen, they may not be forgeries. Sealing them with <laughs> yeah. the, the thing might actually make them legitimate. Yeah. Weird stuff happens all the time. A, it's a good start to an adventure. I found a magic sword in the mud. That led me off to, to start my career or... Cue Monty found, Python quote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, or maybe something else picked it up in the interim. You know, maybe there's a, a cache left by monsters like we described previously. And, you know, monsters have been collecting all this treasure and that's where it comes from. Or 
you know, the merfolk who lived in the estuary, now they have this magic item or a bunch of coinage that they don't care about because it all belongs to the air breathers up above, but they'll give it to you in exchange for a favor. You can do this sort of thing because treasure has been lost. It's found. This is where it comes from. And we talked about escorts previously. Mm-hmm. If there, if you find a wreck or something like that, those aren't just valuable sources of treasure. They can serve to like foreshadow and warn of potential dangers, which is valuable information in and of its own right for the player characters. Huh, you know, this wagon frame, it's uh, badly pitted by acid. I bet there's something like a black dragon up ahead because literally the entire thing has been bathed in acid breath. That's good to know. Yeah, that seems unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should go around this hex. Yeah. We should also probably mention sometimes you get given authority and sometimes you're the police. And you can get paid because people did a bad, Mm -hmm. like fines and stuff, which we should probably talk about how there are some morally questionable things about the way that fines work. Um, Yes. I'm a big fan of the percentage system where it's like a percentage of your income is the fine. So like if a poor person who gets a hundred dollars a month that's ridiculously low but if a poor person who gets a hundred dollars a month gets a 100 dollars parking ticket that's a much bigger deal for them than a millionaire getting a hundred dollar parking ticket right yeah absolutely so we we should mention that this gets into some weird moral ground oh yeah i mean as soon as we start throwing around the term asset forfeiture mm-hmm. we're talking about current events and it's okay because that's a thing that probably should be examined in game yeah, like yeah. it's an, a gaming is an excellent way to examine that particular subject. Sure. Um, and by the way, this does go back to medieval village law when there were fines that were sort of weighted by how much people could pay. And, oh, this person's too poor to pay the fine. Eh, we waived it. Don't do it again. But if your characters are the ones in charge of giving the fines, okay. Now we're doing something interesting. Mm -hmm. The other one that I've got in here, and this one actually came up in the original discussion, is uh, shutting down illegal or immoral operations like slavers and those dealing hard drugs. A lot of the time, those kinds of bad guys will have a bunch of liquid resources sitting around. Mm -hmm. This might sound like we're going back to theft, but here's a specific situation that I could see actually putting in one of my games. A group of slavers has uh, pressed several entire villages somewhere in the world into slavery and burned the villages down in the process. The slaves have been scattered to the four winds. Uh, a lot didn't even survive the passage. This is very much like the actual African slave trade, by the way. I'm not going out on a limb it's, here. It, I mean, you take away the slave part of it. It's drug money, right? What do we yeah. do with drug money when we do a drug bust? Yeah, I mean, it's like you've taken these bad guys out in whatever setting appropriate you know, manner it is. You've turned them over to the police. You've locked them up yourself. You've killed them, whatever. You've got all of this stuff sitting around that is untraceable as to where it came from, mm. but you know was acquired through bad deeds. So what do you do with it? <laughs> right. It, it, it's a complicated question. There's a reason that asset forfeiture came up at all, right, as yeah. a thing. Like, what do we do with the proceeds of crimes that are untraceable? Now, the untraceable part is something that should be talked about because very often they are traceable and the police just don't want to give them up because, hey, money – That's part of the complexity and problematic nature of modern asset forfeiture or, hey, you weren't convicted of a crime, but we took your car anyway. Yeah. The one thing that I want to get back to before we get too far afield, though, Mm -hmm. in some like 
superhero games, or sometimes if you have like some really goody two-shoes paladin style characters, the answer to this might be burn it. It's ill-gotten, it's tainted, you know, we can't trust anybody with this, destroy it. Sure. Well, again, that goes back, There, there's parts of medieval law and church law where it's like, oh, this thing was involved in a crime, it should be destroyed. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it was very common, like, oh, this, the knife that was used to kill someone, it should be destroyed because it is tainted. I mean, you know, a knife is kind of a nice thing to have around, but because it was involved in a crime, it, it is morally tainted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can you can also use this as like that particular idea of, of something being tainted or influenced by the events that it was around. That can take something mundane and make it into treasure. Um, this is where things like relics come from sometimes, you know, yep. a, a saint used this thing during, you know, this thing that helped them become canonized. Well, and a lot of the time it's a torture device. Like, yes, it is. Yeah, like, it was like the going one back to the, the thing that's with. been tainted. Yeah. A lot of the times, this thing is a relic because it was used in the martyring of a saint. The crown of thorns, the nails from the true cross, mm-hmm. splinters yeah, from the true from cross. The these true are, cross, yeah. you know, the most important relics of the church, and they don't come from a nice place. Nope. Yeah. So yes, those then become valuable. Those necessarily become good treasure. And again, getting back to like the whole proceeds from crime thing. Okay, we you know what if again uh, player characters get ten percent of whatever they bust these you know these slavers or drug dealers or whatever you know you get ten percent for for making the bust because you guys are adventurers and that's how we handle things in this adventure in adventuring world. Oh, you busted up a, a smuggling ring in your Star Wars game? Yeah, you know you get ten percent of this. Cool. Or you get the spaceship. <laughs> yeah. Neat. Maybe the the player characters have like a land grant. Yeah, property. We'll get to property here in a little bit, actually. What if you find something left over on the property? Yeah, so this is this is one that I actually had come up this afternoon as I was working on this. Stuff in the walls of old houses is a thing. Oh. It's a really cool thing, too, because sometimes something starts out as worthless and becomes valuable again over time. Uh, you'll see this in cases where people have used like old newspapers as insulation mm-hmm. or just to like pack something for volume. And then somebody else a century later is remodeling, takes a wall off and is like, there's a bunch of newspapers from the 1800s in here. Yeah, you know, <laughs> It's like, even if they aren't worth much in the terms of monetary value, and they're usually very fragile, they're super cool. Oh, yeah. You know, it's an- Just this week, there was a cool story. A plumber in Illinois, Centralia, Illinois, found 13 wallets from the 1940s in the wall of a high school restroom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. What's the story behind that, I wonder? I, I've got the article up right here. I'll make sure to link it. This is from the Riverfront Times. And uh, the best they can figure is somebody in the 40s had been nabbing wallets yeah. and throwing them into the vents because the wallets, none of them had oh. any cash, right? Oh. But they found, they're all women's wallets and they found uh, Missouri tax tokens, social security cards, circus tickets, love letters, pictures of men in military garb, all of that stuff, but no cash. So huh. somebody had been stealing huh. wallets and throwing it in there. But now those things are valuable as historic relics and family relics. Not that you're going to like sell family photos, but- they're cool historical artifacts. I mean, you don't yep. sell them exactly, but you can donate them to an archive a lot of the time. An archive will will gladly 
take old, old, old family photos. Sure. And again, you know, I'm sure they found, you know, some family members and that sort of thing in the local area. Mm -hmm. But again, iterate on that idea. In my fantasy game, I found this document that was stuffed away in a wall in the tower that I bought or was rewarded with. Yeah. Or or a treasure map. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, some eldritch tome or something, you know, I mean, uh, you know, this was an old wizard tower. You find some old scrolls with spells that have been lost or shoved even, into the walls. Or you know how some spells have uh, expensive material components? You found a stash of them in the wall. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. You found like a box of pearls in the wall because the wizard was saving them up for spells. Neat. Yep. There's a, I want to get, a, get away from the man-made stuff for, for a moment. All right. One of the very common tropes in mythology and folktales is the gift of a magic item that's just what the hero needs. And for example, Ariadne gives Theseus a magic thread when he is going to go into the labyrinth, and it keeps him from getting lost in the labyrinth. She also gives him a sword. The magic item that somebody gives. Russian folktales are full of, you know, a witch or wizard or some somebody gives the hero some magic item that works three times, that kind of thing. And there are also certain things that are just naturally or supernaturally or divinely powerful. Uh, we read in Second Kings the story of the corpse of a man who's thrown into a tomb. The body happens to touch the bones of the prophet Elisha, and the man springs back to life because Elisha is so holy that that's what happens. You know, we were talking about relics a moment ago. Those have been credited with miracles in the Christian tradition for centuries. They still are in you know a lot of traditions. Great, and of course, certain genres of sci-fi and fantasy love sci-fi or science fantasy love their mysteriously powerful alien artifacts. Ah, uh, yes. The uh, the precursor artifact is definitely a uh, a well-loved trope in much, much sci-fi. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Halo. Literally the Halo, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. The, the naming device of the entire series. Exactly. Or the weird force artifact from, like, Star Wars Legends books and that sort of thing. These, sometimes these don't need explaining. They just are, especially in myth and folktale. Great. Run with that, because that makes them great sources of magic items. Uh, For example, let's say you've got a spring blessed by a saint. Well, maybe that functions as a potion of healing if you drink from it, right? Or you, oh, that's, that's kind of valuable in and of itself, free healing, great. But maybe there's a guardian of that spring, and in exchange for some service in Christ's name, maybe you're permitted to fill a water skin from the spring, and the water retains its healing properties. All right, well, mechanically, I just gave you four healing potions. Cool. Right. You drink enough of it that it has a healing effect on you. You've got enough for four healing doses. That's functionally, you know. A water skin of healing potions. A water skin, yeah. Yeah, water skin full of healing potions. But it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. You've, re- you've re-skinned it. Ha ha. Uh, um, it, hey. It's its own special thing that's cool and fun. It's a lot better than you find three potions of healing. No, thanks. Oh, by the way, water stolen from the spring, no effect. Of course. That makes it interesting. Makes it fun. Yeah, you need permission. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that kind of gets to the whole customization thing. All of these things we've talked about are really cool opportunities to reframe and reskin all of your magic items and rewards and all that sort of thing. There's a thing that I feel not enough games do where you roll on the treasure tables in D&D and it's like, Here's such and such amount of gold. Well, what if instead you actually look at the treasure table and it's like, yeah, you find like this weird statue and a pile of gems and this 
painting, you know, like, like the, the classic 2D4 art objects, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are fun, though, because they invite invention and creativity, and they in and of themselves tell a story. But then you can do things that are mechanically exactly the same as a magic item out of the D&D Dungeon Master's Guide, but you give it a completely different flavor. Like, again, that that healing potion and the water skin kind of thing. Well, this bowstring idea that you've got here, I think, is pretty cool. Um, so the one that Grant put in the outline is uh, instead of just saying, you know, the Dryad gives you a plus one longbow and thanks for your service, you can say the Dryad gives you a golden bowstring and says, this is made from the twisted hair of a Lamassu's mane or the giantess who lives on top of this mountain. It will never never break and will aid your arrows in flight. So mechanically, it's like being able to just take this bowstring and put it on any bow and give that bow a plus one enchantment. Yeah. And that's cool and full of lore. Right. Because it gives you a little bit of history. It gives you something that the player character will like to know about. It has kind of a story in and of itself, and it implies that it's part of a larger world. But it's it's a bowstring. What's, what's easier to give out? Large weapons or, hey, take this bowstring. Think about Lord of the Rings. Galatriel doesn't give out big things. She gives yeah. out small treasures that are impactful. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Yeah. Reflavor things and give out treasure that is impactful and interesting rather than by the book. Yeah. I think this is also a good place where you can get a lot of collaboration between the yes. player and the GM. Or you can just have it be almost entirely player driven, like within reason. Like, I am a hoarder. I don't really care about my characters, but I care about my character's equipment. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to give up my terrible, rusty dagger that has zero bonuses. Like, I, I don't want to trade up for the newer model sure. um, if I don't absolutely have to. The way that you can fix that is sort of level up your equipment as the characters level up and have the players give input over the course of that that level, as it were. So it's like... Hey, you have downtime. What do you want to do? I would like to research ways that I can make my armor better or something like that. Yeah. And and sort of over the course of the game, work with the GM to see what you can do over time to improve your equipment as it exists in front of you. I kind of started doing this in the motorcycle game, actually. Yeah, like giving yeah, you guys you some did. gear that was going to grow with you. Well, and it made a lot of sense there because that's a world that's very... It's it's like fantasy diesel punk in a weird way. Yeah. And building and improving is very naturally a part of that. Yeah, we souped up your engine. Yeah, we souped up your armor. Yeah, we souped up your gun. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually, I just remembered, I accidentally did this in the colony game, Peter. <laughs> Do you remember oh, Chrissy's yeah? purple dagger? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so she, she was playing a rogue. She threw a, I think she threw a dagger at something I don't some remember. weird chaos thing, I think. It was some weird... Uh, was it Sal? I think it might have been Sal, yeah. Yeah, so they're fighting like a miniature beholder, a, spe- a spectator named Sal. One of my favorite NPCs in the whole game, actually. Yeah, he was, Sal was pretty great. great. Basically a, a, a beholder butler. And so they're fighting him and Chrissy's dagger comes into contact with him. And I don't remember if it was him or Ray. I don't remember the details, but basically it turned purple because it was exposed to weird chaos stuff. And she used that purple dagger for the rest of the game. Yeah. Bear in mind, absolutely no mechanical bonuses to it. It was just purple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was her favorite thing. But juice tastes better from the purple cup. <laughs> it, it, it really does. <laughs> 
the dagger, the, the purple one just the red one goes faster, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's a thing that happened, and it's like this is special to me, and it's part of the adventures that we had, and that's why it's cool. That's fun. That makes it interesting. And again, it sort of works around some of the assumptions. You got to think about, like, if you want to give somebody treasure in your D&D game or your sci-fi game or whatever, think about what that object actually is. Why is it valuable? To whom is it valuable? What are its components? And what is assumed to be part of it, but isn't talked about? Like, you know, daggers, they're always metal and always metal colored. Hey, this one's purple now. Neat. Yeah. Okay. Like a lot of the, like there are whole products out there on the DMs Guild that are tables of weapon descriptions and magic rod descriptions that are just roll on this to make something interesting. But those work and those sell because people are like, oh, I guess I can make this uniquely made magic rod something other than it is a magic rod. Again, we're talking about assumptions, right? We're talking about the bow versus a bowstring. In the Arthurian legends, Excalibur is a powerful, elven-made sword, but Excalibur is not what makes Arthur invincible. It's it's the scabbard. It's the scabbard, and nobody ever thinks about the scabbard in D&D. The scabbard is, I guess I have to store my sword somewhere. Go for it. Iterate on these things. You'll come up with more interesting treasures and build your world in the process of doing so. It's great. And these are places where, as Jenny, you say, it's extremely player-driven. Mm-hmm. I, I gave you a magic sword. What's it look like? You found a magic item. Tell me about it. Like, here's what it does. Tell me how it looks and why your character loves it. Or I went and got this made for me. What is it? Tell me about it. It's not going to be a bog standard blazer rifle out of a replicator, not for a PC. Well, and the other thing to keep in mind is that same advice can even work on stuff that's a bit more complicated than just calling it straight up treasure. Sure. Like the the whole cursed sword arc that we've talked about with Lambert on this podcast a number of times, that is not how a sword of vengeance works in 5e. No, but who cares? Yeah. It's how fu- it's how fun stories happen. Yeah. Change things up a little bit, talk to your players, talk to your GM, try and, you know, find the ways of making Something just a little bit neater than it is in the book. Exactly. All right. We're, we're going long. We got a, we got another page to get through here. But yeah. <laughs> um, I think of one that I think a lot of people do understand who have played, especially D&D's earlier editions, favors are great yes. rewards. Uh, these can be like land grants and titles and castle, that sort of thing. But also favors from powerful creatures or characters like, you know, oh, hey, yeah. the king owes us a debt. Like, one of Ganelon's favorite phrases is, thanks, I owe you one. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, th- those words feel so good. Even to me, even to me, a mere mortal, it feels so good to, like, hear th- the words, thanks, I owe you one. <laughs> yeah. And it feels even better when somebody says it to your player characters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Jenny, I've I've got to sit down and run you guys through, like, Freebooters on the Frontier or something. It's a game of, it's a meat grindery kind of D&D game, and I think you would <laughs> love it because it's about terrible things happening to, char- happening to characters. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe a whole community owes you something. Or maybe just, oh, you're the heroes of such and such? Yeah, come in. We'll talk to you. That has value in and of itself. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Witcher 3 video game. Mm-hmm. There is this guy who's kind of a good guy, kind of not a good guy. Um, Siggy Reuven 
he's a surprisingly light shade of gray for as ambiguous as he is in the narrative, actually. But he's got like the underworld connections and there there is some stuff you can do to kind of get in his good graces. And there was this random spot. I was just walking along and came to this checkpoint. This checkpoint was causing all kinds of problems for all of these other characters in the world. And I, you know, I walked up to the checkpoint and the guard was like, yeah, go on through and leaned over and said, Siggy Reuven sends his regards. Nice. You just skipped a checkpoint because you knew somebody. Yeah, that stuff's great. Like, that that sort of thing is really cool. Yeah. And I just remembered I accidentally did, uh, not accidentally, but I just remembered I did this for another player character in the side quest that just got published for City on a Hill. Because mm. I talked the Countess into making another character, like the warden of the local area, like an official title as a ranger. Huh. Now he's got a title he can lean on if we ever come back that way, hmm. which is good because he's going up in the world from a thief with all of these under underworld connections to, oh, I'm actually kind of somebody important now, officially. Good stuff. There's also kind of the classic blessing as treasure. And I mean, I remember actual D&D splat books <laughs> that <laughs> talked about this, right? Actually, I think they might even be in the, the DMG for fifth edition, but the idea of, you know, something happens and you earn a blessing from some powerful figure, a genie or uh, an angel or something like that. And as long as the conditions are met, yeah, you get a bonus that is functionally like equipment. That's cool reward. Neat. Yep. Run with it. Or gifts from some powerful entity. The Lady of the Lake, handing out swords, forming governments, that sort of thing. <laughs> Favors can also, again, kind of be access. Like, you know, you talked about that example in The Witcher, but like, oh, yeah, you know, instead of having to pay for passage on a ship, we earned it through this adventure and now they owe us. Yeah, we just get it at this point. Uh, things like teleportation gates, um, either out in space or in a fantasy setting, you know, those sure, are really yeah. nice to have access to. Oh, you want to see the secret library? Come this way. Yeah. All that good stuff. Have I mentioned that I'm actually making a secret library in my library? I think you have, but okay. maybe not on the podcast. Not on the mics. Okay. Uh, long story short, I'm collecting conspiracy theory books and not actually cataloging them, just keeping them in the library. Jenny, I'm coming to Canada. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Grant's got a steamer trunk that's just labeled gaming material on the outside. <laughs> no, it's just my favorite books. <laughs> you and Ken Height. I know. Well, th well, again, history is so much more interesting when you want to write stories, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I've we've said this again, but, you know, this episode's plug of hardcore history is a, yeah. you know, <laughs> or creative resource. Ken and Robin talk about stuff, anything. too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yes, so you've got a secret library. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes, I love it. <laughs> and I love that you're specifically hiding conspiracy theory stuff. Here's the thing. I'm not allowed to let people be okay in our mandate we're not mm -hmm. allowed to let people have access to information that that's bad wrong like provably incorrect in our nonfiction section but okay. i can't also put these in fiction because they're not written like that and right. i would actually get people yelling at me about chemtrails <laughs> um so yeah yeah so yeah, um, I'm keeping them. In I mean, a they don't already just because you're there. Um, this is the closest I've gotten to getting yelled at about chemtrails. People donating chemtrail books at me. Aggressively? Anyway, not that aggressively. Just making sure that I that I say comes in and slams the book down. Your library has to take this. Oh, yeah. it's not exactly that. It's more like 
they'll they'll slide me a box across the front desk and be like, so you're actually going to take my books? I'm like, yes. I might not keep all of them in the library all the time, but I will take your books just because I know how to dispose of them better than you do. And they're like, good. And then they leave. They like pretty much run out. <laughs> and then I just have this big box that's, to look through that's and explore. Great. It is great. I love my but, job. Okay. But here's the Sorry. thing. Let's keep, no, no, let's no, keep no, going. No, no, no. Let, let, this is actually not <laughs> off topic. Perfect, because okay. actually, what do we have? <laughs> we have a weird reason for something valuable to be present and hidden and interesting. Okay, that's very true. Well, I can't give you these books. They're dumb and wrong. <laughs> but it turns out you actually need something because one of them is secretly true. Like, you know, they're the ancient aliens. Like 5-5-2000. Five, 5-5-2000 five, like five, 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 yeah, is amazing. I will tell you all about it off the mics. It's sure. fantastic. Like, it doesn't matter which one. Whichever one is correct for your unknown armies game i don't care it's five right? five two thousand i don't care okay. which unknown armies game you're running <laughs> five five two thousand is the noted. right book for you <laughs> noted but <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i will no, link to it in the show notes it's amazing but we don't have time to get into it okay but again you've got the classic like okay we have to earn the right to see this why in the world is this here well it's because people aggressively donate weird books to this one library and that's why this one small library has this weird book we need okay cool story for why it's there history and people are weird and complicated credit to the infinite variety of human experience you know yeah one final thought on this and i kind of touched on this earlier so much of this is on the GM in traditional games, but it doesn't have to be. Story games in particular are very good at saying the player needs to come up with this, right? Especially if it's a PBTA style game where you have like a playbook and you're like, I have this as one of my character options. Well, you're then immediately invited to describe whatever piece of gear you just checked off as this is the thing I have. Port that back. You find a small carven statue of a woman. It's worth 30 gold pieces. Stacy, tell me about it. The yeah. GM doesn't have to come up with it. Your player can be like, oh, well, it's uh, it's this and this. Okay, cool. Well, now I just, um, now I know there's a cult that makes statues like that. Making some notes. Making some notes. <laughs> and now you're, you're world building. And what was, what was it um, one of the Geek at Arms guys said last episode? The player's uh, ideas are better than yours. Sure. <laughs> This is a perfect example of that. Right, exactly. But this is a good op opportunity to let them contribute. Right, yeah. So take advantage of that. It works great. All right, we've gone forever on this topic, and I could keep going. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. But yeah, no, I. This is this is definitely like the we're kicking ourselves out of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. It really is. I mean, in a way... Do you remember Mike and I, Mike Perna and I tried to do uh, the MacGuffin oh, Factory? Yeah. This is yep. kind of what we're doing again. I here. listened to every episode of the MacGuffin Factory. I know. <laughs> was sad <sighs> that I never got a chance to come on and wish that it would come back. Well, you know, Mike's got a lot of stuff going on. I don't want to approach him about it now. But Mike, if you're Mike's listening. Mike's plate has a plate. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you have some time or you want to reformat it and we'll just, you know, you host it and we'll produce it. Whatever. Right. We can kick it back off. Reach out if you're interested is what I'm saying. <laughs> I could keep going, but we really can't. But all of you at home probably have. So again, if you have stories about this, cool ideas, things that we just completely forgot about because we could keep going and just didn't get around to it, let us know. 
reach out to us on social media, saving the game on Facebook and Twitter, tweet at us, talk to us. We love it. And, you know, join in the conversation. If you see us talking about it on Twitter, it's great. Uh, if you want to talk about it on discord, go to our, our discord. We have it out there. Uh, if you go to stgcast.org, it's our website. There's a big old discord link up at the top and on the sidebar, you can see our discord channels and just jump in from there. Easy to do. We have an incredibly welcoming community, absolutely loves new people and it's great fun. Fun and smart too. Like (laughs) so much good discussion with those people. I love our listeners. Really (laughs) supportive too. Like that discord community is really tight and really lifts each other up, especially when things are going badly. We have a whole channel that's pretty much just prayer requests for good reason. You know, and and lots of people giving each other good advice because we've all come from all these different backgrounds and we all have advice to give. You know? Yeah. So do reach out to us. We want to hear about this. Tell us your own stories. We'll share them around. We love these. They're so much fun. Yeah. <sighs> Anything else that we need to talk about or should we wrap it up here? I think we I should mean, wrap it up here. We we could keep going, but yeah, I think it is time to wrap okay. it up. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, thank you for listening for all this time. We really appreciate it from all of us here at Saving the Game. Have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See ya. See you later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.